sometimes how you do something communicates nearly as much as what you do. That's especially true when how you do something is meticulously planned. I think an engagement is the best example of this. Of course, the real point of the engagement is that she agrees to marry you or he's asked you to marry him. That's the point. That's what really matters. But the how he does it is a pretty big deal. You pay attention to that. That's the story you tell over and over because the how he does it communicates something about who he is and how he cares for you and regards the relationship. How we do something communicates volumes. And that is true of God throughout the Scriptures. He doesn't just create the world. How He creates it matters. He doesn't just create humans. How He does it matters. He doesn't just rescue Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. How He does it is significant. He doesn't just rescue us from our sin. How He does it is significant. But perhaps nowhere in the Scripture is this more true than with Christmas. Of course, we all know the real point of Christmas, of course, is that God became man to save us. That's really all that matters. But how He became man communicates a great deal about who God is and how He cares for us. So this morning we're going to be looking at how God came to rescue us. And I think if we're able to, to just look at the story of Christmas with fresh eyes, we'll find that how Jesus came is jolting. I mean, think about it. It began with a barren woman conceiving the man who would later prepare the way for Jesus. And then we hear of a poor betrothed couple that finds themselves not only in the unenviable position of the woman being pregnant out of wedlock, but then they're forced to travel an arduous journey when poor Mary is full term. I mean... This is the God of the universe we're talking about. I mean, this God could have chosen any way He wanted to come as a man. With all the op- every option before Him, how does He decide to be born? In the middle of a holding area for animals. I mean, at least we can say He saw fit to send an angel choir to announce His birth. The moment of salvation is at hand. The fullness of time has has come. God is commencing His save humanity plan. And an angel choir is sent to tell the news. And who does the angel choir approach? Does he go to the priests ministering at the temple in Jerusalem? Does he go to the royal cohort and all the nobility in Rome? The 
choir appears to a handful of low-ranked shepherds who got stuck with the night shift. This isn't normal. This isn't run-of-the-mill. If we can look at it with fresh eyes, it is mind-bending, paradigm-altering, meditate-on-it-for-several-days type of stuff. But since we grow up around the story, we're so near to it that we fail to see it clearly. Ho-hum, shepherds, angels, no room at the inn. Interesting enough plot. We know that movie all too well. We can all quote the lines even before they come. So here's what I'd like to suggest to you this morning. The manner in which Jesus came is of massive significance. It's massively massively significant because it communicates to us something about God. Something about His character and His mission of redemption. To borrow my analogy from the beginning, if Christmas is is our engagement... And it's far more important than that. Then we need to pay attention to how he asked us. Because it's not just a fiance we're talking about. It's our Savior we're talking about. But we're not going to learn about how God came to this earth by looking at Luke's Gospel or Matthew's account this morning. We're actually going to learn about the how God came by looking at it, perhaps appropriately, through the lens of a forgotten little psalm lost amidst the 150 psalms that fill out the book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 113. So if you closed your Bibles, open them back up there. Again, it's on page 510. Like I said, it's not the most common psalm. It's not the most common Christmas psalm. But I think by the end, you'll find that it has everything to do with Christmas. Now, as you heard this, you probably noticed from the outset that quite obviously, this psalm is a call to praise Yahweh. When you see Lord in all caps in your Bible, it's the divine name, Yahweh. Uh, We can get into why they do it that way, but that's what it is. But the psalm begins... Praise Yahweh, exclamation point. And it ends, praise Yahweh, exclamation point. Begins and ends the same way. But what's interesting about this psalm is why it calls us to praise the Lord. Because it gives two very different reasons we should praise Yahweh. And they're actually nearly opposites. So verses 1 to 5 Focus on how he dwells so high. And then verses 6 to 9, focus on how he comes down so low. Praise Yahweh because he dwells so high. Praise Yahweh because he comes down so low. So let's begin just by looking at that first reason to praise Yahweh. Because 
Yahweh dwells so high. Verses 1 to 5. Where you saw verse 1 begins with a simple call to praise Yahweh. All the servants of the Lord are to praise Him. But let's look at how verse 2 and 3 expand this call. And, and we'll notice that there are two from's. Blessed be the name of Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. As it relates to time, the praise of Yahweh should span the entirety of it. That's verse 2. Then verse 3 is the second from. Yahweh's name is to be praised from the rising of the sun to its setting. Now, of course, we don't want to misread the psalm. It's not saying that we should praise Yahweh whenever it's light outside. It's using poetic imagery to describe east and west. So the New Living Translation says, everywhere from east to west, praise the name of Yahweh. When it comes to space, the praise of Yahweh should span the entirety of it. Span the entirety of time. Span the entirety of space. His praise should span time and space. Now that's a big ask. This one God deserves eternal praise from every place in the world. Okay. If you're going to ask that much of a God, He must be significant. I mean, why should Yahweh get eternal praise from every corner of the universe? Why should... Baal's worshippers ultimately be praising Yahweh? Why should Zeus's people or Allah's people or Vishnu's people all worship Yahweh? And why should we be singing His praise not just for a period of time, the harvest season, or when we're longing for some sort of fertility? Why should we sing His praise with mounting intensity for all eternity? Because that's the call. But verses 4 and 5 tell us why Yahweh deserves this kind of praise. It's because He is so high. It says, He is high above all nations in verse 4. So He's high over Assyria and Greece and Iran and India. You see, there's not a people that He didn't create. There's not a people who don't owe, that, owe Him their allegiance. There's not a people who He isn't sovereign over. You see, Yahweh's not a tribal deity. He doesn't only belong to the people of Israel. He's not an American God. He's not an Anglo-Saxon God. He's the God of the whole world. He's the God of every nation. Fast forward to the Christmas story, then it's not surprising that when this baby is born, who shows up but foreigners from the east to worship Him. is God over every nation, high above all nations. But it also says in verse 4, 
and His glory above the heavens. Now the word glory, what it means is that it has, it conveys a certain weightiness. A weightiness that belongs to something of value. The higher the value, the higher the gravitas of it, the greater the weight it holds. You can think about this with anything. You can think about it with sports cars. So, a Mazda Miata has a certain glory. A Ferrari Testarossa has a greater glory. And a Lamborghini Countach, well, that's an even greater glory, right? But God's glory, it says, is above the heavens. Nothing compares to it. Think in your life of the one thing that holds the greatest weight or glory to you. That, that if, if they were to walk into the room, you would be in awe. Your countenance would change. And all of a sudden, you'd be completely oriented to them. Perhaps it's the queen. Perhaps a certain actress. Perhaps the great one, number 99. Perhaps a respected grandparent. God's glory eclipses all. All of them. Everyone we just thought of in the room. God's glory far exceeds it. It isn't even a contest because His glory isn't just a little bit above humanity's. His glory is high above the heavens. See, Yahweh is high above all nations and His glory, His weightiness, His gravitas far exceeds all things. Simply put, God dwells so high. And when we say that, we're not talking about His address, where He lives. We're talking about His grandeur, His majesty, His power, His glory, His authority. He deserves universal praise because He is the God of the universe. Only a God whose glory surpasses the heavens, who is high over every nation, deserves eternal praise from every corner of the world. But that is our God. And so we say He dwells so high. And that brings us through verse who is like this Yahweh, our God, who is seated on high. But then right in the middle of a sentence, between verses 5 and 6, this psalm takes a really unexpected twist. You're kind of walking down the road, thinking I know where this goes. Yes, Yahweh is great, high above. And all of a sudden, whoo, we're going an entirely different direction. It says... Verse 6, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Or if you have the New International Version, it says, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? Or if you have the New American Standard Bible, it says, 
who humbles himself to behold. Or if you have the New Living Translation, it says, who stoops to look down. We're thinking, he's so high, he's so high. And here's the twist. The God, the great God who dwells so high is stooping down. He's humbling himself. He is coming, as the ESB says, far down to take notice of our terrestrial lives. Now, one could assume that this is just a condescending glance, that he is so exalted that even to see the heavens and the earth, he has to stoop down just to see it, when, which he occasionally troubles himself to do. But verses 7 through 9 won't allow us to do that because he doesn't just look down in verse 6. In verses 7 through 9, he comes down. Verses 7 through 9 make clear that this is far more than just a downward glance. God comes down. He stoops down to our low position to help the lowest of the low. And you see that as you look at the reversals that are listed in verses 7 through 9, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Now, dust and ash heap, those are actually very compelling pictures of poverty, abject poverty. I mean, these are people covered in dirt, living in squalor, picking through the ash heap in hopes of finding something of use because they're so impoverished. And those are the ones who, when God stoops down, he sees, and then he comes down and does something. Do you see what he does? He lifts them up. And where do they end up? With royalty amongst the princes. But the psalm doesn't end there. It goes on to talk about the barren woman. And how God not only provides children, but a home and children for the barren woman. The God that's so high, who does he come down to? The poor. The needy. The barren. He comes to them. Other gods might align themselves with the powerful, the influential, the learned, the culture shapers. But Yahweh aligns himself with the poor, the needy, and the barren. With those laboring, bending under the heavy strains of this fallen world, That's who the God who dwells so high comes down to aid. He comes down so low to the lowest of low. Verses 7 and 9 are not rhetorical hyperbole. It's not just something the psalmist conjured up because it's evocative imagery. It is historical fact. If you read the Old Testament, Yahweh does this over and over. You can think of poor and destitute Ruth and Naomi. Or you can think of little orphan Esther. Or you can think of barren Hannah and her son Samuel. Or you can think of barren Sarah 
and her son Isaac. It's true even of Israel as a whole, because when Yahweh tells us why he chose to adopt Israel as his kind of chosen, treasured possession, his nation, his people, he says it's because they were the smallest of the nations that he chose them. You see, that's what God does. If, if to use the imagery of, of God dwelling so high, if He comes hurtling down across thousands and thousands of miles to come down to us, He doesn't go and then and stop all of a sudden just at the outer rings of society where the nobility are. He comes all the way down, crashing to the lowest of the low. He comes down so low. And that's reason, the psalmist tells us. It's reason to praise Him, isn't it? I mean, I think many of us find it hard to really grasp in our hearts just how high God is. But for some of us, it's not hard to grasp how low we are. And that anyone would reach down to help us a stranger, a family member, a co-worker, that anyone would reach down to help us amazes us. But that someone in a position of power, let alone the God who dwells so high, would stoop to help us. That is reason to praise Him. So that, that's Psalm 113. It tells us that the God who dwells on high also comes down so low. Almost two opposite truths, right? Yet it's only when we take these two truths and bring them together that we really begin to grasp the essence of who the true God is. Man invents all sorts of gods. Be they formal deities, or in the West we just kind of have our gods that we invent that we don't call gods, but we worship and serve them. But the one true God, if you want to understand what He's like, you have to understand both these truths, that He dwells so high that He comes down so low. Now, we'll never be able to fully grasp His vastness, His highness. I mean, He's so far wiser, so far stronger, so far holier, He's far more loving, far more just than us. He's completely other. He is so high. And, and His mere presence amongst us demands awe. He carries a glory, a weight that nothing in this earth can compare. He is God Almighty. But his coming down to lowly is just as essential to who he is. The God who dwells so high comes down so low. So we should praise him. That's the message of Psalm 113. Now imagine that Psalm 113 is a song that you sing. Because that's what the Psalms were. The book of Psalms was really the hymn book of Israel. So imagine your barren Elizabeth 
And on Saturday morning, the choir director tells you to turn to Psalm 113 as we sing, and you sing this song. Or imagine you're a commoner like Mary, and every night as you go to sleep, or at least certain nights as you go to sleep, your mom sings Psalm 113 over you. Imagine you're a poor shepherd. Your dad was a shepherd, your grandpa was a shepherd, and you're a shepherd. Maybe Psalm 113 is one of your favorites. It gets stuck in your head. If you're singing these psalm, if you're singing this psalm and psalms like it, and you're longing for God to save, how are you expecting God to save? What is your messianic expectation? Would it be too naive to hope that he might come to the lowly when he comes? I mean, when God does see fit to come down and rescue us from this terrible plight we're in, is it unrealistic to hope and expect that he might come to people like me? That's exactly what God does. The manner in which He comes proclaims that Psalm 113 is true. Not only will the Almighty God come down, when He does, He comes to the lowest. So a barren woman is involved in the story. She gives birth to John the Baptist who prepares the way for Jesus. So shepherds are involved in the story. The angel tells them in Luke, the angel tells them, I bring you good news. And we know he's talking about, the angels are talking about the shepherds because it says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. So it is a message for everyone, but I am bringing you shepherds good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And what's the sign to them? Wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a feeding trough. I mean, of course that's the sign, right? If you've been singing Psalm 113, of course that's the sign. How else would he come? Because when God comes, he comes low. Because that's God's heart. So, of course, there's no room in the inn. Because when God comes down, he comes all the way down. That's the expectation the Old Testament has given us. That is what our God is like. And so, when a common girl like Mary learns that she will bear God's Son, she breaks out in a song. Turn with me and look at the song. It's on page 856 of your pew Bible, Luke chapter 1.
she sings this when her, uh, when Elizabeth um, comes to visit her. Elizabeth, of course, is the barren one who is now conceived in her old age and is going to bear John the Baptist. So now we have Mary and Elizabeth together. And Mary sings a song. We often call it the Magnificat from the word magnify, which she says, my soul magnifies to start the song. You see that in verse 46? Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She sings about how she, this lowly woman, will be called blessed by other generations. She talks about his mercy and the strength of his arm. Look at verse 51. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, but he has brought down, or he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Do you hear the echoes in her song of Psalm 113? Here's the interesting thing. Psalm 113 is an echo of a song Hannah sang in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, barren Hannah, God gives her a child and she shouldn't be able to conceive. And, and she sings a song about how God exalts the lowly. And that informs Psalm 113. And here we have Mary singing the same themes in her song. Because this is what God does. This is how God acts. The God who dwells so high comes down so low to help the lowly. His heart is for those crushed under the weight of of this fallen world. I, lo I love the image that the song It Came Upon a Midnight Clear gives us for those whom Christ came to save. It says, And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low. Whoever wrote that understand, understood human suffering. You've been going through it even if you're not slouching physically, your forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. The message of Christmas is for those bent very low. so much we could do to apply these truths. We could encourage the weak. 
or we could warn the proud. We could list some of the false views of God that are out there, even amongst Christians, and destroy them. We could speak of how our hearts should reflect God's heart for the poor and needy. Or we could commend praise to such a God. And all those applications would be timely and warranted. But I want to preach a sermon this morning without an application. Except to say this. Maple Avenue Baptist Church Behold your God. Behold your God. God didn't just come down to save us, though that is, that is the essential thing. But consider how God did it. God eternal humbled he who has such power and such glory lying in a manger. Meditate on it for days. Marinate at it. Let your view of God reform your mind. Let us get to know our God and our Savior by how He came to save. Behold Him. Know Him. Again, to borrow the analogy from the beginning, this is our engagement story. Behold your God. Consider how he chose to save. As we do, as we come to know our God, behold our God, all the applications will take care of themselves.